lots to pray for. We could probably be here all night if we wanted to. We had a <laughs> we at Island Ford years and years and years ago. Somebody come up with a bright idea that the men met down at the church, and we was gonna have an all night prayer meeting. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so we was gonna pray and read our Bible through the night, and uh, and I remember you know praying over prayer, lit, prayer, prayer, and probably reading some, and then I, I found them out wherever I was, and I went to sleep. There was some that was really going to, you know, push through and stay awake, but they, I think they fell asleep on their knees. Uh, but anyway, but um, I do appreciate prayer. You know, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. <laughs> so we understand the disciples a little bit better uh, when it comes to that all-night prayer thing. But... Um, uh, but one of the prayer meetings that I was in that God just blessed tremendously, um, it was prior to a revival service that was scheduled for a week and went nine weeks. Uh, and uh, But I forget how many weeks prior to that, every, every day, I think it was every day, so many days I want to say it was every day I was there at the church anyway because we had the radio station but but men uh, covenanted together to meet at the church at 6 o'clock every morning and pray going into the meeting and we, we did that for several weeks you know there was a sacrifice put forth there was probably some fasting behind that those prayers as well but but the, the sacrifice of men having to take the time to get up, to get over to the church before many of them went to work, and to pray. And God blessed that. And like I said, we, we had one week scheduled as far as revival go, and we went nine weeks straight. And so and God just sent true revival, and, and we went on that for quite some time. Folks were saved, and, and of course, folk, people getting right with God. We later on joked that we... You know, we were we were confessing stuff from back in kindergarten. I mean, <laughs> we we wanted to be that right, and um, and God did bless. All right, so on Wednesday nights we are going through elemental theology, and we have our Bible here too, just <laughs> for proof. <laughs> but it's a biblically based, and uh, Emory Bancroft um, put this together, doctrinal and conservative, and you know, and the way again he has put his book together. Um, is the study of, so ology is the study of. So we have um, bibliology, the doctrine of the scriptures, uh, theology, the doctrine of God, um, Christology, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, is it anthropology, the doctrine of man, I forget what theology is for sin. But anyway, it's a doctrine of sin because I have to look back and forth. Doctrine of sin, doctrine of salvation, uh, the doctrine of angel, uh, doctrine of the church, and the doctrine of angels, and the doctrine of the last things. Now, uh, I have gone through this in our little Bible institute that we had years ago at my home church. Uh, we had a little two-year Bible institute that we put together. Uh, so I've gone through the whole thing once upon a long time ago. I took this and started going through it in the Sunday school 
uh, with a PowerPoint uh, down in Mississippi. Uh, and I think we did get through um, Christology, maybe pneumatology, I can't remember. Maybe through Christology or somewhere in Christology. But he starts out in Bibliology because without trusting that this is God's Word, then everything that it teaches us about God and everything it teaches about Jesus Christ, everything it teaches about man and the Holy Spirit and man and sin and salvation and the church and the last things, you have to first establish that this is God's Word. And that's the way Mr. Bancroft put his book together. And when we went through there, there are historical proofs that this is God's Word. There are, just a little rehearsal, uh, historical proofs, there's archaeological proofs, there are genealogical proofs, there's geological proofs, there's geographical proofs that this is right. Scientific proofs, you know, water cycles in Job, the oldest book, probably written book of the Bible. It mentions the water cycle, it mentions a lot of other things scientifically, later scientifically proven, but it was already in God's Word. <laughs> Ain't that amazing? And by many old-time scientists got at least some direction maybe to some of the things that they uh, invented and or whatever right out, of, right out of the book. And they built upon those things. Uh, Michael Faraday, he was a, a Christian scientist, not the one up the road here on the side of the road on Douglas or wherever it's at there. But he was a scientist that was a Christian. There we go. And he gave us the gyro and the Faraday cage and um, things like that. So, um, but, uh, but he depended on God's Word. And then um, another one, too, not necessarily directly out of the God's Word, but another name that was a Christian man that he was a businessman um, that is in our, well, modern day was R.G. Letourneau. Some people know his story. Uh, he, he built big earth-moving equipment, like Caterpillar is his, was his competition, except for people, men that I know that's driven a Letourneau and has driven a Caterpillar. They said it's like driving a Cadillac and <laughs> or a Rolls-Royce and then driving a, you know, a Chevrolet. I mean, there's that much difference in them. But anyway... But uh, R.G. Letourneau, uh, a Christian man, he has a, a, had an engineering school down in Lo uh, Longview, Texas, something like that. Anyway, and, and just uh, built a big, you know, the plants and stuff. When he died, of course, you know, God dealt with him as far as his giving. And, uh, you know, through the, through the years, he, he set up a foundation. And when he died, he was given 90% of his income to God and living and had plenty on the 10%, let's put it that way. But in his story that I read and heard, he was dealing with a, he, uh, he had a conundrum, I like that word. Uh, <laughs> he, he was trying to make this machine, but it had, to, it had to go one way and another way at the same time, and he just, he just hit a roadblock, and he set his, his drafting table, and he prayed that God would just give him the answer. And uh, so God, you know, he, he felt that God moved it and gave him the answer uh, that whatever the movement was, was kind of like an elevator 
and a Ferris wheel. <laughs> so if you can put that together, that's what it, he needed. And if anybody's ever been in the arts in St. Louis, <clears throat> they kind of, as you go up, you're in this little bucket and you go up a little bit and the bucket turns and you go up a little bit and the bucket turns to get up into that and you get out at the top. It's kind of crazy. But engineering minds and God has given men those abilities through the years as well. Men that recognize and give acknowledgement to God uh, in their lives and what a blessing it is. So anyway, we're currently here at the end of Christology. Uh, we are now in the resurrection of Christ, and uh, in the resurrection of Christ, we uh, have discussed the fact of the resurrection of Christ, and then, as it says, the doctrinal statement, or through here, the fact of Christ's resurrection is firmly established by the scriptures, and there are corroborative proof uh, of his, um, his resurrection, the evidences of his resurrection, of course, going back to the scriptures, as seen by the empty tomb in Luke 24 and verse 3. Uh, this is kind of an outline form. By the appearances of the risen Lord, Acts 1, 1 through 3. And then he, he appeared to Mary as a consoler, John twenty sixteen. He appeared to the women as the embodiment of restored joy, Matthew 28, 5, 8, and 9. He, he appeared to, I'm just kind of bringing this up to where we are tonight, yeah, to Simon Peter as the restorer of souls, Luke 24, 34. He appeared to the two on the way of to Emmaus as a sympathetic instructor. <laughs> I love that story. Uh, he, our count, he appeared to the disciples in the upper room as the bestower of peace. He appeared to Thomas as the confirmer of faith. He appeared to John and Peter as one concerned with the daily affairs of life. He appeared to the whole company of disciples as the embodiment of the headship and authority. And then where we ended last week, he, yeah, that's it, right there. As to the whole company as the embodiment headship of, of authority. Now, so going back to the, to the big numbers here. So as evidenced by the empty tomb as evidenced by the appearances of the risen Lord, and now number three, as the change wrought in the disciples. And this is the resurrection, evidenced by the change wrought in the disciples. John chapter 7, the book of John chapter 7. So there's some changes in the disciples, and we've kind of bounced around this and in even some recent sermons, and then in, I know last week we kind of touched on some of this, is that, especially when we talked about the two at Hermaeus, they were disheartened. They, the disciples could not understand. They were looking for a, the, uh, the earthly king, I mean, yeah, the earthly kingdom of God established. They were looking for deliverance from the Romans. They were looking that, that you know, the Messiah would set up his kingdom here, and they didn't understand that heavenly kingdom. They didn't understand that he had to die until after the resurrection. And then after the resurrection, again, that restored the joy. That, that, that brought, brought a whole new, uh, uh, whole new perspective, uh, facet, there we go, 
facet to their, their thinking and their religion, if you want to put it that way. So it changed the disciples uh, once he was resurrected. John chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go unto Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. And so there's some comparisons here. So... His, uh, it's compared with, so his brethren didn't believe. Go show yourself to his brethren. I think it was his earthly brethren. He went to his own country, and he was a prophet without, uh, what's the word? Uh, yeah, a man without honor uh, in his own country. You know, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the carpenter? I think I should call him the carpenter. And they and 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 even though he was doing these works, they they were tunnel visioned because of their familiarity. Like um, you know, Brother Tim has brought out several times, familiarity breeds contempt. You know, one of the things that I have seen, and Brother Hall, it was difficult. <laughs> Brother Hall, being my pastor for long time, uh, over 16 years, who is also my father-in-law, who is also, was also the director of the radio station, which belonged to the church, which I was employed to. So he was my, my boss, if you want to put it that way, at my job, but he was also my pastor, but he was also my father-in-law. I never got away. You, th- you think you, you, you had it bad. <laughs> He kind of, Brother Josh understands a little bit. You live next door. That's even worse. No. Now, I say that, but there, there is a certain times, it, you know, you just like, because I, I would complain sometimes because for a long time, we had men's prayer meeting on Saturday night. So I was at the church, because that's where the radio station was, Monday through Friday, doing my job, either in Christian school or Christian radio work. Then I would go in on Saturday night for a prayer meeting. Then I was there Sunday. So I seen Brother Hall seven days a week. So he knew me really well. And it was kind of joked that I was his target. You know, <laughs> me and his other son-in-law, that when he was preaching, he didn't have to go far. He just stopped right there at the bench. And that was, that. he just knew me too much. And so I know pastors... And again, being your pastor, I've had to weigh this out and I've had to pray about it and I've had to, you know, because I know pastors that are involved in their members' lives greatly Monday through Friday and they theirs, just like Brother Brunson not casting off on Brother Brunson, but you know, brother, the, those men that brother that works for Brother Brunson in his business. There's a there's a pastor. Well, it's Brother Aaron Wells's pastor. I just say Brother Aaron Wells's pastor. He runs a crew and he's involved and, and and they do a lot of activities together and so on and so forth. But then I know others 
that purposely, you know, are there when you go to the hospital, are there when they need to bury in, are there when you need to be marrying, are there when you need a prayer, are there, but they don't get in, you know, they, they preach, they purposely preach. I don't know where I'm off on this. I think it's just to help you understand. They purposely preach it to where the men are according to are supposed to take the place that the husbands are supposed to take the place of and then they let the you know the, they from the pulpit prepare the men of the church to be the spiritual leaders of their families and they leave it there Monday through Saturday and then they come in they preach to them they instruct them they encourage them to be the priest of your home be the, the leader of your home, and so on and so forth. And in doing that, then, because that contempt goes both ways, when you are around me a whole lot, not that I don't want you around me, but when you're around me a whole lot, then some of my flaws might be manifested. And then you get a different perspective you know, of the pastor. Not that I'm out here running around on my wife (laughs) or not that, you know, that when I do hit my, hit this nail with the hammer instead of the metal when I'm supposed to be hitting that I come off with a string of cuss words. I don't. Nothing like that, but just that familiarity. You, You will look at me differently and I think that there needs to be that you know, like I said, when, we, when I went through that Hebrews 13, that salute, just a little bit of, you know, the supervisor. I, Diane's my supervisor. I don't call her Ms. Ryder, but if she demanded that of me, I would. And, I, and like I said, in my classrooms, I say, Mr. Bell, you call me Mr. Bell as your instructor, and I'll call you Airman Snuffy Smith, or Airman Smith, and, you know, General MacArthur, whatever, I'll put a title to you, and that keeps a separation. Used to, you'd go to the banks, and it would say, Mrs. Smith, or Miss Smith, or Jones, or whatever, on their name tag. And now it's Buffy. <laughs> and you get to know people that way, and, and even with secretaries and, and, you know, boss, you know, legal secretary. I mean, or secretaries to a person, administrative assistants to the boss, used to Mr. and Miss. Again, that created a a dividing line, a a, a point of authority. Teachers and principals, that was established in the workplace. And there's a breakdown of that now. You know, dress down Fridays. So you go in, I mean, I'm from old school. I expect a lawyer to be dressed like a lawyer. I went to a lawyer's office on a Friday one day. I had a shirt and tie on, slacks. He comes out in a pair of jeans and a Mickey Mouse sweatshirt. And I'm going, you're the lawyer? (laughs) You don't look like a lawyer. (laughs) 
But, you know, there's, there, there needs to be. So I, if I hang around you, that's one reason I don't just limit the social media even. And sometimes I wish the ones that I have is, and I didn't befriend, I mean, I didn't send out the request to them. They sent the request this way. But then I see things and I'm going, I want to preach on that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I'm, I, I love getting together with Chili dinners and I love when every now and then we've went out and eat with folks and 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 so on and so forth and little activities but an every day every week kind of thing I just you know what I'm saying because it goes both ways if I don't know how you're living I don't know the things you know that that God might give me out of the book to preach then it's easier to preach. Because if you're my good friend, and we go do this together and that together, and we hang around each other all the time together, and then God puts something on me, and I know that that's in your life, <laughs> I would be a whole lot more likely not to hit it, to dodge that, if I, because you're my friend. So there's that. But there was a change in these disciples and again, they, um, so that was, that's where I got off. So his brethren, James was uh, a half-brother to our Lord. There was, and his, his family, you know, they just, and then the people in his community, they looked at him as the carpenter. So they said, you know, Depart hence and go into Judea that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest for there is no man that doeth anything in secret and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou doest these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. In comparison to Acts chapter 2, oh, let's go ahead, well, yeah, I'm sorry. No, no. In comparison to 1 Corinthians 15. This is after the resurrection. The other one was before the resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians 15, we know the story, or we know this verse very, very well. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Now he mentions James specifically. Why? Because James was his brother, if you want to put it that way. They shared a mother. <clears throat> Yeah, I think it's 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 here. Or yeah, uh, well, I got two fourteen. I got a comparison there, and a, and Acts three fourteen as well. So 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 James, a brother, didn't necessarily believe. He, you know, you raised. That's just like me. When I said that I was called to preach, some of my family's like, mm hmm. <laughs> I said I was saved. My some of my family like, mm hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because they knew me. But he mentions James specifically there in in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And then we'll get to Acts here in a second. Mark 14, 69 and 70.
And the maids saw him again and began to say to them that stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again, and a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth hitherto. All right, so that's Mark 14, and then compared with Acts 2, 14. So Peter was one way, so I know where it's getting to. James in, James in John 7, he didn't believe it, you know. But James in 1 Corinthians knew after the resurrection that that's him. There was a change in James. Before Peter's didn't, I deny, I deny even know him in, in, in uh, yeah, in Mark 14, 69 and 70. But then here in Acts chapter 2, there's a different story with Peter. <laughs> Acts 2 and verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. And then verse 22, Him being delivered by... Let's back up to yeah, 20. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you, by... Miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Let's grab the next one. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. He's denying him in the previous scripture but he's declaring him in these scriptures. What was the difference? The resurrection. Because <laughs> he, he was standing condemned in the trial in the first time. Peter was kind of outside trying to you know, watch the happenings. And so he wouldn't get also put on trial and maybe face the crucifixion. He denied Christ. And he's still wondering on that side of the cross, what is going on? And then when he's seen a risen Savior, then he declares he's a different person. He's got a boldness about him that he didn't have before. And in comparing to, I'll grab the, let's see, um, see further, Galatians 1.19. Well, let's back up. We're just right there at Acts 3.14. Let's just grab Acts 1.14 while he, he mentioned it a moment ago. Acts 1.14, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Right. And then Acts 3.14. All these 14s here. 3.14. But, he, but ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. So... Uh, yeah, let's see. And in Galatians 1, 19, and we're going to get into some reading here in a second. And then I knew, knew a lot of scriptures here looking at it, but then we'll read what these guys have to say about it. Uh, Galatians. My Bible will turn right with one hand while I hold my place. One nineteen. nope, there we go. But other... But other of the apostles saw I none save James the Lord's brother. Let's see here. All right, so 
here's 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 probably Bancroft's um, uh, notes on it. I guess probably. At the time of the crucifixion of Christ, we find the whole apostolic company filled with blank and utter despair. We see Peter, the leader of the apostolic company, denying the Lord three times with oaths and cursing. But a few days later, we see the same man filled with a courage that nothing could shake. We see him standing before the council that had condemned Jesus to death and saying to them, quote, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised up from the dead, even by him does this man stand before you, whole Acts 4.10. Bold, denied him here, but he said, look, you crucified him. And it's by him and his power this man walks. The same counsel that put him to Christ to death. He's standing boldly before him. And then Mr. Torrey says, later we hear Peter and the apostles answering their demand, that they should be silent regarding Jesus with the words, quote, we ought to obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his, wit- and we are his witnesses of these things, Acts 5, 29 through 32. Again, bold. What made the difference? <laughs> the resurrection. <laughs> the resurrection made the difference in these men because they were defeated at the crucifixion, but the resurrection gave them boldness to stand. Not only boldness in the fact that they saw him by his own power get up from the grave, but with the promise, again, this is not in the book, but it's, it's the same thing here. With the promise that he also gave Martha, First John chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at that last day. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And so men of old, we talked, we mentioned the foxes, the book of martyrs, and all those people that died for their faith. They could die. They could stand. We've heard preachers, you know, be robbed you know, at gunpoint, and they're like, are you threatening me with eternal, I mean, are you threatening me with heaven? You know, give me all your money or I'm going to kill you, and you're threatening me with heaven? Go ahead, kill me. I'm just going to die and go to heaven. But you know, you, on the other hand, if you're not born again, now I've heard that from preachers that could stand with boldness. Why? It's the resurrection that makes a difference. And the resurrection made a difference in these apostles' lives as we see. The change in the day of rest and worship. So we're not only talking about, we're going to try to grab this real quick. The apostles' lives and the boldness that they had post-resurrection. But the change of the day of rest and worship. In Acts chapter 20, 
in verse 7, it's talking about that first day of the week, Acts 20 and verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. 1 Corinthians 16. It's talking about why we are here on Sundays and not on Saturdays, the Sabbath. 1 Corinthians 16. Verse number 2. Let's back up to verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye upon the first day of the week. Let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, and there, uh, that there be no gatherings when I come. He mentions the first day of the week. All right, so this is the thing that changed. Dr. Brooks, Dr. Brooks in his book, Did Jesus Rise, says, quote, First we have the Lord's Day, which is traced by an unbroken line of witnesses and writers back to the period of the crucifixion, and not a step beyond that. The heathen did not recognize the day, nor do they now. But it is admitted that all the apostles and early Christians were Jews. How did it come to pass then, without precedent, without command, without example even, in the face of all their associations, religious instructors, and established habits, they begin to observe the first day of the week instead of the seventh as the special time for public and united worship? That they did so observe it does not admit of a shadow of doubt it is fully proved by the testimony of heathen and Christian writers. Pliny, in his letter to the emperor Trajan, says, quote, The Christians affirm the whole of their guilt or error to be that they were accustomed to meet together on a stated day and to sing hymns to Christ as to God and to bind themselves in a sacramentum, not for any wicked purpose, but never to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, never to break their word or refuse when called upon to deliver up any trust, after which it was their custom to separate and to assemble again to partake of a harmless meal. And then the question is, what is meant by, that, by the stated day? It is clearly shown by Justin Martyr, who wrote not long afterwards as follows, quote, on the day called Sunday is the assembly of all who live either in the cities or in the rural districts, and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the apostles are read. Unquote. Among other reasons he assigns for its observance, he says it was because Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead upon it. Barsadanes, a, heret a heretical writer of the same period, in his letter to the emperor Marcus Aurelius Antonius says, quote, Lo, wherever we be all of us are called by one name of the Messiah, Christians, and upon one day, which is the first day of the week, we assemble, our, uh, we assemble ourselves together, unquote. Dizirius, bishop of Corinth, Melito, bishop of Sardis, Arrhenius, uh, bishop of Lyons, and other writers speak of the same effect, that weekly celebration of Christ's resurrection is upon is one upon which no diversity exists. And then Mr. Schofield, in his in his notes, says the Christian 
first day perpetuates in the dispensation of grace the principle that one-seventh of the time is specifically sacred, but in all other respects it is... In all other respects is in contrast with the Sabbath. One is the seventh day and the other is the first. The Sabbath commemorates God's creation day. The first, Christ's resurrection. On the seventh day, God rested. On the first day, Christ ceaselessly was Christ ceaseless. Yeah, was Christ. Christ was ceaselessly active. The Sabbath commemorates a finished creation, the first day a finished redemption. The Sabbath was a day of legal obligation, the first day one of voluntary worship and service. The Sabbath is mentioned in the Acts only in connection with the Jews and in the rest of the New Testament, but twice. In these passages, the seventh day Sabbath is explained to be to the Christian, not a day to be observed, but a type of the present rest into which he enters. All right, so the positive testimony of the early disciples of the resurrection of Christ. Here's a positive testimony. We'll be done. Hang with me. Acts 2, 14, which is already read. Peter and 24 and 20, uh, 22 through 24. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea, be this known unto you, and hearken unto, uh, hearken to my words, ye men of Israel. Hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And, of course, so, so Peter at Pentecost is a, has a positive testimony of the resurrection of Christ. All right? And so we've seen... The, so we've seen uh, let's get the third one here. So it is the change wrought in the disciples is what we see of the evidence of the resurrection. The empty tomb, the appearances of the risen Lord, and the change in the disciples... Okay, so this still all falls under the change of the disciples. So we've seen the change in their boldness from their denying and their fretting and their, their boldness in their, in, their, in their demeanor. And then we've seen the fact the change of the day of worship. That was another change that speaks positively to the resurrection of Christ. And we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday, not just Easter Sunday. Every Sunday by showing up on Sunday. That's what we do it. That's why we do it on Sunday. That's why we come together. It is proof. Uh, it is a proof of the provisional justification of believers. No, yeah. I mean, no, I'm in the wrong place. Never mind. Hang on. Where are we at? Results of it. Fulfillment. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, Paul and Mars. So we've seen Peter, the positive testimony of the early disciples. So here's another positive that come out of it. Paul and Mars, Hill, Acts 17, verse 31. Because he hath appointed a day in, in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Apostolic skepticism was the first step toward apostolic faith. It demanded proof ere ever it would yield to the hope. These were hard-headed, matter-of-fact men. (laughs) 
Sounds familiar. Not given to nervous excitements, keen to detect frauds, quick to reject cunningly devised fables, even when they gathered about a dearly beloved master. They had all they had all of our modern demand for reality. They would not believe until the evidence in all of its overwhelming force was before them. Then only did skepticism give place to faith. Such skepticism is worthwhile. It brought a faith that was dear, fixed, resolute, and revolutionary. And in Christ's own witness, Revelation 1.18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have keys of death and uh, hell and death. And then here's the doctoral statement. We're done. <laughs> Jesus Christ rose from the dead according to the scriptures as attested by many infallible proofs. And then we'll get the results of the resurrection next time around.